Hello and welcome to Five Valleys Productions Sonda Story Slam. My name is Cassie and today we'll be sharing true stories inspired by strangers on the streets. Our performers were asked to develop characters from candid photography into a well-rounded person. The story's theme is facing the unknown, such as young love being tested by the cruelty of the world, responsibilities of parenthood and the loss of loved ones. To begin this soulful journey of personal exposure, we have a story from Maddie Jackson named One Step Forward, Three Steps Back. When I was 10, my parents died in a car crash. My life was great before that happened. I had everything I ever wanted. It was amazing. My family, it was just me and my parents. So when they died, I had to go into care. It was so horrible. It was a a horrible upbringing. But... When I turned 16, I left. I got a job as a kitchen cleaner. And I got a flat. And I even met somebody. Somebody called Adam. He was so lovely. He was a bank manager. He he would do anything for me. He was my life. And... Everything was going great. My life was turning around. It was absolutely amazing. I loved it. Until the day of my parents' anniversary. I thought, 20 years down the line, I'm going to be fine. I can go into work. I can talk to people. It's going to be okay. This year is my year. I've got everything. And I went to my parents' grave, and it was so horrible. I couldn't stand the fact that they wasn't with me. They wasn't here. They don't know what I've achieved. I just wanted to be alone. I didn't tell work that I wasn't going to go in. I just went straight home, and I watched TV, and I just didn't... I couldn't talk to anyone. I just wanted to be alone. So, a couple of days later, I went into work, and my boss, he said, Maddie, I need to talk to you. So, I went with him, and he said, why did you miss days off work when it was really busy, and you didn't give no notice? So, I told him what happened, and he said he understood, but it wasn't acceptable. I knew what he was going to say. My eyes just started watering. I couldn't see anything. My vision was so blurry. And he told me he had to let me go. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how I would live. So I ran home. I thought this was going to be the end. I opened the door to go inside and I seen this letter on the floor and it said if you don't pay this amount of money we're going to evict you from your house in two months 
I couldn't have us. I, I can't live. How am I supposed to live? I didn't know what to do. So I rang Adam. Not that I could even talk. All he could hear was me crying down the phone. So he rushed over to my house. And I explained everything. And that's when he gave me hope. He said, it's fine. You can come and live with me. Honestly, I can take care of you. That's what I'm here for. So I believed him. And I went with him. And for a couple of weeks, it was absolutely fine. And I've always wanted a family of my own. It's, it's my dream to make a family because I don't have one. So we tried for a baby. And a month went past and nothing was happening. So I went to the doctors and they ran some tests on me. And a week later I got the results. When I opened it, it said that I was infertile. I didn't know what to do. I couldn't tell Adam. So I went to the doctors to be sure. And he told me it was positive. And there was other ways. He told me about IVF, but it was way too expensive for me. And I didn't want to tell Adam because I didn't want him to pay for more money. So I kept the secret to myself. And it was really pushing me over edge because I couldn't even look at Adam in the same way anymore. So one day, when I was home alone, I got a headache. It was really bad. So... I went into the kitchen and I got a glass of water. I went to the tablet cupboard and I got some pills. I took two for my headache. And I took another two. And another two. And more. I don't even know how many I took. I just got so tired. So I went into the front room to lie down. And all I can remember is waking up and hearing beeping in my ear and shouting and breath all over me. When I opened my eyes, Adam was over me, telling me, what have you done? What's happened? Why have you done this to yourself? I was in the hospital. I couldn't speak to anyone. But I finally had the courage to tell Adam what happened. And he said he'd always be there for me no matter what. We will have a family one day. We will. And the doctor diagnosed me with depression. And I went home with Adam. I had my medication. And 
I took it easy. I just thought, I don't know why I'd done it. I don't know what I was thinking. When I had such a loving boyfriend. But I, I am looking for a job now and I will stick to it. This time, I will go down the right path. Thank you. Performed by Summer Pardita with the tagline, My Emotional Rollercoaster. Next in line, we have Amelia Thompson's story, My Beautiful Jimmy. I have always wanted that family of my own. My parents were always so supportive of me. And I thought it was about time I was to stand on my own two feet and be the greatest person I can be and support myself. I had an amazing two brothers. They were younger than me, but we were so close. I really did love them. But there was one person, one person alone, that I loved more than anything in this world. And that was my Dylan, my amazing, beautiful boyfriend, Dylan. He meant everything to me. I couldn't imagine my life without him. He made me feel whole, and he made me feel content with everything that I was doing. We have been, we have been together for five years now, and I will never, ever be able to repay him for all that he has done for me. We used to talk about our future together and where we would go with our lives together. But most importantly, we talked about children. How much I longed to have a child myself and how much I just knew that it would complete our family, complete our lives, to have a baby of our own. Every time I used to bring it up to Dylan, he always used to brush it under the carpet and say, no, Amelia, we're far too young at the moment. Maybe in the future, the foreseeable future. I just wanted to know why. Why, why not now? But then, one day, <clears throat> I, was, I was experiencing sickness. And then I f fell pregnant. I took all the precautions like you would normally do. A pregnancy test. And then I went to see the doctor to get that confirmation that I needed, the confirmation that I deserved to know whether I was pregnant or not. The doctor confirmed that I was exactly four and a half months pregnant. I didn't, how did I not know that I was pregnant? I mean, I wasn't even showing. I just didn't really know what to do next, but the most important thing I had to do next was to tell Dylan I wasn't sure how he'd react given the conversations that we have had. But then I plucked up the courage and I phoned him when I left the doctors. And I said, Dylan, I need to tell you something when I get home. And then once I got home, I said to him, Dylan, I'm four and a half months pregnant. And he looked at me. And I've never had anyone look at me with such hatred in their eyes and he said to me you abort that child or I walk out this door right now I had so many 
feelings and emotions running around my head. I didn't know what to say or do at this point. But I knew in my heart that I couldn't lose him. He was everything to me. I just needed him to understand that maybe this was a good opportunity for us. Maybe this is the way to expand our family and make it as perfect as what it should be. But he kept saying it. You abort this child or you lose me. And I couldn't lose someone that made me feel so happy. He made me feel beautiful in ways that I could never imagine. Although that I was a Roman Catholic girl and he was an atheist, the difference in our, in our opinions for religion was far from normal. He expected me to answer him there and then. And so I did, although what I was feeling was completely different to what I was going to say to him. But I agreed to have the abortion. I agreed to give up the one thing that I have always longed for. So then I went and booked an appointment at the doctor's for the abortion. And I got to the doctor's. With Dylan, he wouldn't leave my side. It was as if he knew that if I went alone, I wouldn't go in on my own. I was standing at the door waiting to go in with him at the, before we went into the waiting room. And then I sat down once I got in and I was shaking with fear and anxiety of what to do. Why am I doing this? Why am I giving up my life for this one person? Why am I giving up the one thing I've ever loved or could ever love for him? But it's because he binds me together. He makes me feel happy, content. So then I went into the room after they called my name. And the doctor said to me, you need to have a scan. I wanted something to make me be able to cling on to the memory of what I could have had with this child. So I asked to find out the sex of this baby. She said to me, you're having a boy. And I had so many more emotions and feelings going around in my head again. And I had so many names that I wanted to call him. But there was one that stood out. That was Jimmy, my beautiful Jimmy. He would have been so perfect. But then she said to me, it's time to go down the medicinal route to have the abortion. So she gave me one pill and I took the pill and she said, you come back in two days and then that will be done. So then I went back in two days and everything was finished. I've never felt so dead inside and so empty but I knew that if I didn't do it, I'd lose Dylan and I couldn't have that life with him, that future that we always planned. So that, that's my reason for doing it. I've had to kind of like persuade myself to believe that I was doing it for the right reasons. Then five years on, we got married. It was the most beautiful magical day of my life. I've never, ever been this happy. 
And then, six months ago, I held my beautiful baby girl, Penelope, in my arms for the first time. And I looked into her beautiful eyes. And I always knew that a part of Jimmy will be living within her. Thank you. Played by Vicky Perrell, If Only Life Was That Simple. Following that story, we shall now play you Carl Johnston's Curious Alex. So, um, as a child, I had everything I ever wanted. You know, my mum was always there for me. No matter what I wanted, she'd give it me. Mum, mum, will you come to my rugby match? Yeah, I'll come. Mum, mum, will you come to my play? Yeah, I'll come. Didn't really see much of my dad, he wasn't really there. But I all changed. After, after my little brother was born. My mum just didn't care about me anymore. It was like I wasn't there anymore. I'd, I'd say, Mum, Mum, you come to my rugby match? I can't. Little brother will get scared. Mum, Mum, you come to my play? I can't. Your little brother will be scared of the noise. It was like I didn't even exist in the house anymore. It was like I might as well have not lived there. So at the age of 18, I left. I left and I had one thing set in my mind, one thing, that I was going to be a better parent than her. Um, I went to uni, I studied sports, and I met this beautiful lady, absolutely stunning. Her name's Jane. Um, and uh, eight years ago, <laughs> I asked her to marry me in the rain, um, and she said, yeah. It was beautiful, absolutely beautiful. And three years along the line from that, Alex was born. And I thought my life changed. I, I had to start having responsibilities. I had to teach Alex the meaning of life. I had to teach him how to live. I had to show him right or wrong. But the worst thing was, was helping him conquer his fears and the one fear that always kept coming up was height. So one day, I decided to take Alex to the park. Not the park, sorry. I decided to take him to the ball pit. And there was this massive slide at the ball pit. He'd always walk past it. Whenever he looked at it, he'd look. And then he'd walk off again. And I thought, I've got to do something about this. So I got him. I said, come on, Alex. We're going to go down this slide. He was screaming and kicking. I got him in between my legs. We went down. That's it. He went off screaming, you know, I thought, oh, it'll be all right, it'll be fine. So I go back, I sit down, it gets to around five o'clock, I think, right, it's time to get him home. So I go back to this ball pit, he's not there. Maybe he's back at the slide, so I go to the slide and I check, he's not there. I go back to the ball pit, and this time I have a proper look and I dive inside this ball pit, and he's not there. And... I ask all these children, I say, look, have any of you seen my little boy? He's blonde, have any of you seen him? They all shake, some of them look at me a bit funny. And I get out, I rummage out of these balls. And then I go to my wife, I go, Jane, Jane, have you seen Alex? Is he, is he there? Have you seen him? She hasn't seen him, she's looking at me a bit weird. So she goes back to the pool but to see if it's my incompetence. Um, so I think, right, what can I do, what can I do? So I go to the person who runs the place and I say, look, you've got microphones, give an announcement, give an announcement for my son, see if he's there. 
Could Alex Johnston please come back to his parents, please? Five minutes go past. He doesn't come. He, he's just not there. He could be anywhere. He, he could be dead, anything. And I, I'm looking behind this bullpit. And the fire exit door is somewhat open. And it's there. You know, and hundreds of hundreds of things go in my head. You know, and I rush outside this door and there's three main things that I see. Road, cars, strangers. He could have been run over. He could have been hit. You know, someone could have taken him. So I look and I think, right, what's the first thing to go? And I see a park. And I run to this park and I'm gone. And I look and then I scream, Alex, Alex, are you there? Alex? No answer. So I turn out and I see where else he could have been. And then I get a really, really sharp pain in the back of my leg. And I check, and I look, and it's this stone, quite a big stone. And I turn around, see who threw it at me. <laughs> and it's Alex at the top of the slide. And he says, Dad, Dad, look at me. And he goes down this slide. And every, every emotion I ever had, I've, I've just wanted to get him and put him next to me, just left. You know, he went down this slide on his own and he did it he beat his fear and he beat his fear because of something I did you know it's beautiful it's absolutely beautiful to see my son get over his fears <laughs> so I get him I say right come on you why did you run out and he explains to me he was scared he didn't like it and he thought I'd have another go on it because this slide was a bit smaller so we get in the car my wife finally calms down and as we're driving back, my wife looks at me and she stares. And it's that look to sort of say, yeah, you're my man. Thank you for listening, guys. Running from fear, the tagline for that story shared by Lee Bowers. Our project is based on Sonder, a term coined by John Koenig. John created the Dictionary of Obscure Sorrows, which gives words to emotions that don't exist in the English language. The definition of Sonder is a realisation that every passerby lives a life as vivid and complex as your own. Next we shall hear Connie Baker's story called We'll Meet Again. My parents never really had much time for me when I was a child. I mean, they did love me, and they still do. It's just... They had to work full-time to support us and the family, so I never really got to see them. It was okay, though. It meant I got to spend more time with my grandma. Now, my grandma is the best grandma you could ever ask for. She's sweet, funny, caring, and she always knows how to make you feel better. When I was little and I'd go to play school... She'd come over and pick me up and take me home. We'd do colouring and play with stickers and my toys. We'd even bake ginger biscuits, my absolute favourite. And then as I got older, we'd watch black and white films and we'd look at all of our old vintage clothes and records and we'd listen to the music for hours. And she'd show me old photos, ancient black and white things of people dancing, smiling, having fun. And she'd show me photos of my granddad. His name was Eric. He was tall, he had dark hair, mysterious eyes and a cheeky grin. I never got to meet him, 
He died in the war after my mum was born. But my grandma always said that we would get on. We would be so close, just like me and her. In all the photos she showed me, my grandma was wearing this golden locket. It was beautiful. She told me it was a gift from my granddad, from America. And she said to me, Connie, on your 16th birthday, the locket will be yours. I promise you, I'll give it to you. And you must pass it down throughout the family. I was so excited. I'd always wanted it. It was so beautiful. So it came to the week of my 16th birthday. I came home from school, just like a normal day. And I was ready to go around my grandma's to help her find the locket. I knew it was in the attic somewhere. So I thought, I'll help her, it'll be easy. And that's when my mother received the phone call from the hospital. My grandma had died that night. She'd gone up into the attic to go find the locket for me. And she must, she must have fallen on something. And she was so scared and shocked that she, she had a heart attack and died, clutching this locket for me. My heart stopped. Everything around me went still. It was my fault. If I hadn't wanted that locket, she never would have gone up there. This never would have happened. I locked myself in my room. I couldn't deal with it. I couldn't face the truth. I refused to speak to my siblings or my parents. I didn't leave my room for days. And I cried until my eyes were red and raw. Tears falling on my pillow every second. I felt so, so guilty. My grandma was gone forever. The woman who meant so much to me and wanted to see me grow up was gone. She'd never get to see me become who I could be. She'd never see me live my life and be happy forever. It came to the day of the funeral. My mum came knocking on my door for me. My mum never knocks on my door. She came in my room, sat down on my bed, and said she wanted to talk to me. My mum never sits and talks to me. She sat down next to me, and she cried. She sobbed and wailed, and let out years' worth of tears on me. I'd never seen this woman cry in my life. And here she was, broken down in front of me. And then I realised, although my mum and my grandma weren't close before she died, my mum still loved her. And my grandma always loved my mum. I didn't realise that it was just me and my grandma who were close. My mum had so many memories with her. We all did. We sat together and cried for hours, holding on to each other, our sobs filling the room. And once the tears had ebbed away, we sat together and we told stories of my grandma, the funny things she'd say, 
the sweet things she'd do, how lovely and perfect she was as a person. And I realised then, I might not be okay. My mum might not be okay. None of us are okay. But my grandma and I, we will meet again one day. Thank you. That was April Wiseman telling Connie's story with the tagline, My Chance to Say Goodbye. We have almost reached the end of the episode. But first, Jeanette Sparks shall tell us about her story, My Invisible Husband. Me and my husband had a wonderful life together. We always did lots of activities that ranged from staying at home baking, going to the theatre, going to the gym. And sometimes we'd go to the beach and we'd have a competition to who could find the best looking seashell. We also shared a passion for travelling. So we've been to many places around the world, but I'll never forget my night in Paris with him. We were sat on the Eiffel Tower and we was looking at the sky and we saw a shooting star. I turned to him and said, Brayden, make a wish. So he got down on one knee and said to me, marry me, Twinkle. Now, Twinkle was my nickname that he always used to call me. Of course, I said yes, and we got married abroad. A few years back, we was traveling in Europe, and he felt ill, seriously ill with some type of heart cancer. We knew he was going to die, so we had to return home. It was the safest and most comfortable place, I guess. Before he died, we decided to plant a tree so we'd have an ongoing memory and achievement to carry on. His last words to me were, I promise, if there's any way possible, I'll try and get in contact with you. I never want you to be alone. But the thing is, I was alone. I was really alone. I spent most of my life with him and relied on him for my happiness. My adopted parents were back in the UK while we lived in America and my son was 23 years old, so he was off doing his own thing. I had a friend come over and she brought her kids. We wasn't very that close, but I needed the comfort. She had to go out for something but I can't remember what. She left her kids with me, and I found myself playing and talking with these kids. My innocence came out, and I didn't feel so lonely anymore. I didn't have anything to worry about. Because of this connection, I decided to become a childminder. One day, I was babysitting this little girl called Sasha. She was six years old. We decided to do some drawing, so I was off doing my own drawing. She was doing her own. Her mum came to pick her up and she left her drawing behind. I looked at her drawing and my heart stopped and I stared. She drew my exact moment in Paris. Everything was the same. She drew the night sky with the shooting star. Braden bending down with a ring in his hand. And she even wrote in French... Marry me, Twinkle. Now, I don't know about you, but this six-year-old could not know how to speak or write in French, as far as I'm concerned, let alone know about my special moment in Paris when I haven't told her. 
I was convinced it was a way Braden was trying to get through to her, to me. I walked over to the window and stared outside our, out at our growing tree. I gazed up at the night sky. A shooting star shimmered across the darkness. I felt a warm breath on the back of my neck and I felt safe. I didn't feel scared or insecure. I knew Braden wouldn't really be stood behind me physically, but I knew it was him. I knew from that moment I had to get in contact with him somehow. So I went to go and see a psychic medium where they contact spirits. The spirits show them or tell them stuff and they repeat it back to you, the psychic. So I went and saw one and she just set the mood and did an opening ritual and asked for Braden Sparks. Some of the things she said made sense and it seemed like him until he said, I love you, Sparkle. At that moment, my whole body went cold. I could hear my heart thumping in my chest. I stared at the medium and she went pale and her eyes went dark. I was so afraid I left at once. I couldn't face it. It wasn't him. That was not Brayden. That was not my husband. A few days later, I was sat in my living room and I could hear music playing from upstairs. It sounded like a song me and my husband used to listen to together. I walked closer to the stairs and realised it was She's the One by Robbie Williams. That was our song. So I rushed upstairs and noticed that it was coming from the attic. So I went up there and found the CD player in a box along with the Ouija board. Now, me and my husband used to play with Ouija boards when we were younger, but we just thought it was a game. We didn't think anything of it. But I discovered it was a way of contacting dead spirits, so I had to try it. I set the mood with candles, I dimmed the lights, and put some charms around the board. I put a seashell, my wedding ring, his wallet, and the picture. I started with an opening ritual, placing my hands on the pointer and moving it around the board. I said, as when I gather, gather, heart of true, spirits nearby, I call to you. I'm trying to reach my husband. Please, spirits, I don't want any negative entities. Brayden, are you there? I stopped and waited. And eventually, the pointer began to move around the board. It went from letter to letter and spelled out, hello, twinkle. I breathed in heavily and stopped. I released my breath and asked, is it really you? My hopes were risen. He spelled out, I promised, didn't I? I believed it was him. I know it was. I could feel it. Our conversation seemed like it lasted forever. But it was only short because of the situation of the lettering. I had to go eventually, so I said one last thing. What do you want from me now? Slowly but surely, he spelled out, happiness and freedom, see the rest of the world for me. So that's exactly what I'm going to do. This weekend, I'm on my way to Iceland to see the Northern Lights. 
It's something we've always wanted to do together, but I know he'll always be by my side in spirit. Thank you. The Dead Never Truly Leave Us is the tagline for that story, performed by Larnica Simmons. To close the episode, we shall play you Tom Corby's story, The Day the World Stood Still. When I was younger, I had a brother called Edward. My father was an alcoholic. My mother died of cancer. No, I wouldn't say I was the best brother. I was small, I didn't know what I was doing. But I still loved him. He was the cool kid at school. He used to smoke behind the shed. He didn't have to have a conversation to make friends. But me, I was the one who got called a nerd for liking maths. I was the one who loved school. I got bullied for it, badly. I remember one day, I was walking home from school. This kid came up to me, approached me, and he pushed me against this wall for no reason. But all of a sudden, this kid hit the floor like a sack of potatoes. I looked to my left, and there he was. Edward punched him in the face, of course. But violence isn't always the answer. But it made me feel good for what he did. It made me feel safe. Years came, 1972. The war broke out in Cyprus. They needed troops from England. So Edward went off. He needed the money. I couldn't let him go on his own. So I signed up too. That war was the definition of hell. Constant gunfire every night. There was one day which scarred me and I will never forget it. The night was hectic. You would stick your head out of the bunker and you'd hear a bug whizzing past your head, followed by a massive bang. All of a sudden, the sun came out. It was peaceful. The gunfire stopped. I was at peace. Maybe they went home. Maybe they just had enough. 
I had enough. Our sergeant shouted, gain ground, get cover. As I crawled out of that bunker, so many bodies filled that field. Sons, dads, gone by us. The sergeant shouted, take cover. Edward found a bunker to hide in, so I jumped in there with him. In front of us, I heard a rustle in the bushes. I looked down at my feet. There was a live hand grenade ready to blow. My life froze. I was ready to go. But Edward just threw himself onto this grenade. And just like that, gone. No going back. I fell to my knees after seeing my brother die the most barbaric way. I'd toss my rifle to the side. I got up. I gave up. Right there, right then. I was ready to go. I walked forward until I felt a massive punch in the chest. I hit the floor blacked out. I then woke up hearing screaming. I was in a tent, hospital tent, and all of a sudden, this angel looked at me. I thought, this is it. My time's come. But it wasn't what everyone says it was. It's not the big gates. It wasn't the flashing lights. It was just this beautiful woman staring at me. Now, that woman eventually became my wife. And I lived a long life with her, with Edward in memory. But now, it's just me. I'm alone again. Every night, I go to sleep. I whisper to myself, I'll see you guys soon. Thank you. Told by Ben Robinson, the story's tagline is Afraid of Being Alone. It has been a lovely experience hearing these accounts from our performers and we thank you for listening. Please come and join us on February the 8th, 2017 at the View Cinema in Stroud for our next project, Be Not Afraid of Greatness. For more information, you can check out our social media. Search for Five Valleys Productions on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. 
We look forward to seeing you again. Thank you. Bye.